0: Hi Hey Nice to see you It's you all studio-like I know I'm lying on the couch, I hope that's okay I pretty much assume you're always lying on the couch <laughs> From faculty, this is First Time Long Time Stories about sports for people who may not like sports I'm Aaron Smith. And that voice you just heard was Jonah. If you've ever heard an episode of First Time, Long Time, you know that he's one of my oldest friends in the world. I called him way back in the beginning of the pandemic, right when sports began starting up again. And I want to say right up front, a lot has happened since then. An election has come and gone. We have a new president. Multiple vaccines are being delivered to people around the world. And more than 500,000 people have died in the United States. And... Though this is literally the least important thing on that list, an entire baseball season has come and gone and a new one is just starting. Now this season, we are looking at what we might learn from the last games played before quarantine. And this episode is all about baseball. And it might seem silly, with everything that has passed, to go all the way back and look at the last baseball game played before quarantine, especially since it was a meaningless preseason game between the Yankees and the Washington Nationals, but nothing exists in a vacuum. And that game, and my conversation with Jonah, as distant as it may be, is as relevant today as it ever was. So, before we dive into the game itself, my call with Jonah. All right, I have a question for you. You've been watching baseball. Uh, I watched a little bit of baseball this weekend. Was it weird? Yeah. Super weird. I couldn't tell how much I cared. I couldn't tell if I was supposed to care and didn't. There's no fans in the stands, so this is strange. And, like, why are you playing in this gigantic place when there's nobody there? First of all, I cannot believe that Major League Baseball didn't decide to just, like, play their games In some cornfield or like random ass tiny stadium like that would have been so freaking cool it would have been so cool you know what play them all at the field of dreams field in Iowa yes agreed yes all of them every single one yeah okay so that was a cute idea and all but lately I've been thinking about that conversation a lot Field of Dreams is one of my favorite sports movies of all times. If you don't know it, it's about an Iowa farmer who hears his voice commanding him to plow his cornfield and turn it into a baseball diamond, which he does and which ends up changing his life. It's beautiful and supernatural and romantic, which is basically how I see baseball. But in light of the election, in light of the deepening wound that is America right now, I can't stop thinking about one thing.
1: So you want me to record myself?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's my producer and self-inflicted wound, Julia.
1: Should I start? <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you picture like a baseball diamond carved into, an, into a cornfield and like a small bit of stands and a few people watching a game, like what kind of emotions does that bring up?
1: I think baseball is inherently a romantic sport. And if you're putting it in that setting, it's even more romantic. There's something about it. It's supposed to like bring you back to your roots. And I think that even as someone who's like not really connected to like the greater history of America.
0: Both of us come from families with immigrant roots. Both of us don't own the American story in the way that like an Iowa farmer that's been there for. 15 generations owns American story. As as I'm saying these words, I I want to acknowledge that what I'm saying is bullshit. It is bullshit. And yet I believed it in my bones as I said it to Julia. Families like Julia's Chinese American families, they helped build this country. They've been part of the American story for hundreds of years. And the same is true of Jewish American families. My mother's family has been in this country for almost as long as baseball has been played. And yet neither of us feel like we own it. Like baseball or America is ours it all belongs to Iowan farmers not people like us that feeling of not belonging it's encoded in baseball with all its ritual and history and romantic vision of america and that expression that sentiment that feeling of not belonging is so dangerous so insidious and so often intentional
1: that's the catch of america right you're always made to believe that you might you might fit in you might this might be your story and all these rituals and all this history might be yours but I mean, for so many people, it never really is. Um, that That's the catch.
0: So in this episode, we're going to hear a story about one person who loved baseball his entire life, who who blew up a comfortable life so that he could be part of the game that would take years and years and years and years to accept him and may not have accepted him still.
1: Yeah, and that's... That's like, that to me is a more real narrative of what it means to be an American than than anything else, right?
0: Okay, we're in Palm Beach, Florida at the last baseball game played before quarantine, March 12th, 2020. The stadium seats 7,000 people, which is a little more than a small market minor league stadium. The stands aren't packed. There are a few seats here and there. People sit on blankets on the grass outside the stadium. It all feels somehow old-fashioned. Bleachers, sun, people drinking beer and relaxing through an afternoon of inconsequential baseball. Players make silly preseason mistakes. Balls squirt through their legs. The first baseman drops a routine throw. It's kind of sweet. And it's kind of like the baseball of Field of Dreams. Americana distilled into this little nugget for a few people to watch. To be honest, there's not much to talk about in this game. The Yankees win 6-3. There are a couple of home runs. COVID is about to set in. No one seems to care. Florida, you know the deal. But there is one thing that really stands out to me. The home plate umpire. I have always loved umpires. I even tried to be one once when I was a kid. It didn't go well. Here's a clip from our very first episode. Do, do you know that I, I umped one one game for T-ball? No. No. I umped one game for t-ball I called the ball foul One of the dads started yelling at me And I changed the call (laughs) And then the other dad started yelling at me That was that Now everyone knows that sports have referees And some sports have umpires And for a long time I thought that the difference was just in name And it kind of is and it kind of isn't Referee comes from the word referrer, to refer. The referee's job is to hold the rules of the game in their mind and essentially adjudicate when a rule has been broken. In football, basketball, soccer, etc., the referee is the holder of the rules. You refer to the referee to make sure that the game is being played fairly. Umpire comes from the old French word non-pair, which means not even, as in the tiebreaker in a dispute, but also it can mean non-equal, as in above the others. The difference between refer and non-pair is subtle, but it's important for one reason. In baseball, an umpire isn't there to be a reference for what happens when infractions occur. The umpire is there to define the field of play in every pitch. Did a ball being thrown at 95 miles per hour cross the batter's body through an invisible box? Was it a strike or was it a ball? Did the runner's foot touch the base before the ball reached the fielder's glove? Safe or out? Was that a foul ball? Was that a fair ball? You literally cannot play the game without making these decisions every single play. Think about it this way. You could imagine a basketball game where there were no fouls, no rule infractions at all, and the referee would do absolutely nothing. But in baseball, the umpire is involved all the time. You can play a game without an umpire, but it's not easy.
2: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, Little League sometimes can be such a disaster because the parents tend to umpire. And most parents are terrible,
0: terrible umpires. That's Peter Golenbach. He's written and co-written dozens of books about sports, including a book about one of the most famous umpires in the game, Hall of Famer, Doug Harvey.
2: Doug Harvey was a spectacular umpire because he had, among other things, he had presence. He was a tall dude. He had shock of white hair. Players respected him because almost always
0: he made the right call. His nickname, they called him God. They called him God. Umpires get called a lot of things. Blue, Mr. Guess, blind, dog robber, I guess because they steal seeing-eye dogs because they're supposedly blind for not having called a strike. Doug Harvey was called God, and not just because he was loud and respected, but because what he and every umpire that has ever umpired a game of baseball has to do is practically impossible. Take the basic job of a home plate umpire. The pitcher tries to throw a ball past a batter through an invisible box that's about 17 inches wide and starts around the batter's knees and ends at the midpoint of the batter's torso. And the umpire has to decide if the pitch ball passed through that invisible box. Inside the box, it's a strike. Outside, it's a ball. Four balls, the batter gets to go to first base. Sounds easy. Well, pitchers throw close to 100 miles an hour from 60 feet 6 inches away. That gives the home plate umpire about four tenths of a second to decide if it's a ball or a strike. Four tenths of a second. The crowd is screaming. The batter has, by the way, just waved a bat about six inches away from the umpire's eyes. Oh, and to make matters even more complicated, pitchers use all kinds of spin to make the ball bend in the air in all different ways, specifically designed to trick the batter and the umpire as to where the ball is headed. Oh, and then there's the fact that pitchers almost never throw the ball down the middle of the plate. They paint the corners, meaning they intentionally try to get the pitch to cross the strike zone at the edges of the box, pushing the limit constantly. Four-tenths of a second. Getting it right or wrong can mean nothing at all on an average pitch, but in other moments, it can mean the end of one career or the defining moment of another. In other words, the stakes are really high. Recently, baseball television broadcasts have superimposed a white box in the shot, showing the strike zone and in real time, showing whether the ball was inside it or outside it.
2: And and what you come away with is the
0: amazement
2: at how often these umpires get the call right. Some of these pitches, they miss the, the white box that's on the TV on the outside by a half an inch,
0: and the umpire calls it a ball. In, the, in your book, you write about Doug's early years and kind of this sense, this just inherent sense that there's a rightness and a wrongness in the world, and and somebody's gotta somebody's gotta call balls and strikes all the time. Well,
2: it's it's justice. It's somebody who has to have integrity, and these umpires have huge, huge integrity. They they take what they do incredibly, incredibly seriously. You know, it, it's interesting we're having this discussion because. You you know, you really wonder, why do people love the game of baseball so much? And, And I do believe a lot of it has to do with the integrity of the game. You know, Alexander Cartwright decided that there should be nine players on each team. There should be nine innings, that the pitcher's rubber should be 60 feet, six inches away, and that bases should be 90 feet apart. And it's been that way ever since and then the way it was designed it was designed perfectly it was as though it was designed by the gods i do believe i do believe that baseball quite frankly is as much of a religion as christianity or judaism i do i think people who belong to the baseball religion they have their history they have their bible you go to a baseball game and it's very much like going to
0: church or temple
2: um, it's, it's quite frankly a religious experience, and don't, don't let anybody tell you otherwise.
0: If baseball is a religion, the stadium is the temple, and Doug Harvey may have been God, but to me, the umpires are the high priests. Sure, the batter is important, the pitcher, even the catcher, that's the holy trinity. But the umpire is the conduit through which the game flows. And if you think I'm being overly dramatic, think about this. When I was growing up, we used to play stickball in the schoolyard. A few of us knew how to recreate the overly complicated wind-up of a pitcher. Some of us could hold a bat the way our heroes could. But all of us knew how to scream, STRIKE THREE at the top of our lungs. Even the kids that couldn't throw a ball knew how to punch a guy out, clench your fist in front of your face and shout, Hra! The umpire is the game. We're back in Florida at the Yankees-Nationals game. Major League Baseball games are officiated by four umpires, which make up a crew. There's one at first base, one at second, one at third, and one at home. And the crew takes turns at these positions. One game, one guy umps at home, calling every single ball and strike that's thrown. And the next game, he goes over to third, where the fewest calls have to be made. It's kind of like a day off. And then he goes to second, and then first, and then it's his turn to be back home again. Now, out of the four umpires in a crew, one is the crew chief, the final word on controversial plays and the guy that sets the rotation schedule. He's got more responsibilities, and he's paid more. The ump behind home plate in Florida is Angel Hernandez, a 59-year-old veteran umpire from Cuba. He's been a Major League umpire for almost 30 years, but he's never made crew chief. And a few years ago, he sued Major League Baseball on grounds that there's bias within the system. Here's a clip from ESPN's Mike and Mike show.
2: His lawsuit alleges that since Joe Torre took over in 2011, the World Series umpires crews have been all white with just one minority member in
0: Alfonso Marquez who worked the 2011-2015 World now, Series. Now Angel Hernandez is, is not without controversy. Many umpires are hated by the fans, but Hernandez is particularly hated. There are literally countless videos on YouTube about his blown calls. But there's something else going on here. Here's another clip from the ESPN show. Listen, the idea that
2: baseball we talk about all the time. Has having a bit of a culture war on its hands at all time between the Hispanic players and then the the older old guard of traditionally white players in American baseball this doesn't seem like something that would be overly shocking that it would be difficult for someone a minority candidate to achieve at the same level of his white peers I mean we see that across society so I don't know why it'd be that surprising here but to point
0: right (laughs) baseball has a long history of racial discrimination and umpires are no strangers to it
3: MLB has not hired a person of color or woman into the highest executive ranks until this past month.
0: That's Alex Coffey. She's a journalist for The Athletic. We interviewed her over the summer, and since we spoke to her, things have changed. For example, the Marlins hired Kim Ng as the first woman to be a general manager in Major League Baseball, and that's really big. But baseball's been around for a long time. And the point is...
3: Baseball's a sport that's really slow to change. Is kind of the way that it's always been.
0: Right. I don't want to belabor this metaphor, but here we go. Religions don't adapt easily. Anyway, a few years ago, Alex had a job at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. She worked as a writer and researcher, and one day she comes across an archival piece of audio from an interview with a man named Emmett Ashford, the very first African-American umpire in the major leagues.
3: (music) He debuted in the American League in 1966, um, which is roughly 20 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier with the Dodgers. So big uh, time gap in between those two. Um, And that was something that really interested me. was like, why did it, you know, why did it take that long, you know? And like, yeah,
0: that's interesting to me too. So how did it happen?
3: He grew up in the Los Angeles area. Well, I used to work,
4: I used to play, rather, with a semi-pro team out here called the Mystery Nine, out in Hyden Park.
0: That is Emmett Ashford, from a recording housed at the National Baseball Hall of Fame Library.
4: And Mystery, of course, was how I managed to be the only black face in this white team. <laughs> and I used to play with them on uh, Saturday and Sunday. And... On Sundays, they would have these wintering pros come in, you know, and uh, I couldn't show as well as they could or play as well as they so I
3: rode the bench. And one day in 1941, the scheduled umpire just decided to not show up. So Emmett, um, I believe he his phrase was like kicking and screaming.
4: They carried me
3: kicking and screaming out behind the pitcher. <laughs> and said umpire.
4: Notwithstanding the fact that I had on a pair of Green slacks, 2 tone shoes, green sport coat, whatever. Anyway, pandemonium ensued, but a strange thing happened around the seventh inning. You know, they take up collections in those games on Sundays. Uh The collection that Sunday was
3: extremely heavy, and
4: the team thenceforth decreed that I should umpire.
3: And that would be the last time that he would be on a baseball field as a player.
0: Emmett Ashford loved being an umpire, but to become one... Even for a semi-pro league, he'd need a license. So he went down to the recreation department to fill out an application.
4: I was there bright and early Monday morning, but I had already bought a little dollar and 75 cent cap. And I wasn't about to lose my investment. So I went in the office and I told the little secretary, I said, I would like to get an umpire's application. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, "Uh, Say that again, sir. I said I like a baseball umpire. The application, you know, she stuttered and everything. I didn't know what to say. So finally, she went back and got the uh, director of recreation, and he came out and took me back then, tried to dissuade me. And after a half hour or so, he found out he couldn't. He says, "All right," he said, "if you're willing to go out there and take it," he says, "I guess I'll have to back
0: you." If you're willing to go out there and take it, I guess I'll have to back you." It's obvious, but it bears saying out loud. Racism doesn't only live in epithets and abuse. It lives in simple moments like asking for an application from a municipal department of recreation. It lives in the anticipation of epithets and abuse. It lives in the actual laws and regulations that prevent a person from doing something. But it also lives in the simple feeling that maybe it isn't for me. Emmett wasn't willing to accept that umpiring wasn't for him. and that moment, getting that application was a small victory, but it was enough to light a spark inside of him. And five years later, while he was serving in the military, stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas, that spark turned into a fire, because that's when Emmett learned that Jackie Robinson had just become the first black Major League Baseball player.
4: When I was down there in my bunk in Corpus Christi, and Jackie was signed, I said, I'm gonna be the first black signed.
0: Now, it's important to know, in the best-case scenario, one that's not colored by race and bigotry, it's incredibly hard to become a major league umpire. I mean, players have it hard. There are 40 people on a baseball roster, and there are 30 teams. That's 1,200 spots out of millions of kids that want to make it to the big show. But umpires in the majors, there are 76 of them. And there's another thing. Players, on average, last about five and a half years in the majors. Umpires stick around. Here's Peter again. You know,
2: once guys make it to the majors, they don't leave unless they die or unless they become injured in such a way that they can't do their job anymore. There are, are very, very few openings in Major League Baseball, uh, and so you've got all these umpires umpiring Class A, Class A, AA, Class A, Rookie League. The Dominican Republic, I mean, there are are umpires everywhere, but only a very, very, very small number of them get to make it to the major leagues.
0: Emmett Ashford wanted to break into this unbelievably tight-knit community, and he wanted to break in at a time when segregation was encoded in law. It was going to be next to impossible. So he started at the bottom. He did local games, junior college games, and finally he got a chance to try out to be an umpire in a Class C minor league called the Southwest International League, the very bottom of the ladder.
4: So they rigged up a four-game tryout for me, and they put it outside the continental limits of the United States.
0: (laughs) To be clear, this was a nothing game in the... Bottom of semi-pro baseball and yet Emmett's presence was so threatening to the establishment they had to move his tryout and the whole game to Mexicali just to avoid any problems
3: so from Los Angeles that was about a 235 mile trip so he goes down there he's supposed to take the field with two other umpires two white umpires and when he arrives he realizes that they had caught wind that they were going to be umpiring with a black man and weren't um weren't you know, weren't comfortable with that, didn't want to do that, and decided to not show up to the game.
0: He drove 235 miles across a border just to be able to umpire a game safely, and the people he had to work with wouldn't show up to umpire with him. The crowd grew restless. The stadium played music while the teams frantically searched for a replacement umpire to work alongside Emmett Ashford, and they found one. Doug Harvey's dad, the man they would eventually call God, who chose to be an umpire because in this world there are clear rights and wrongs. His dad was willing to umpire with a black man in Mexicali. After the games were done, Emmett went back to Los Angeles, back to his job at the post office, and waited.
4: And sure enough, uh, about a week later, the president of the league called and asked if I'd care to finish the season. Shoot, I ran in the postmaster's office. (laughs) Got a leave of absence for three months. I was off again down the league. And uh, I wound up that year working the playoffs.
0: Yeah. Never forget it. The next season, he got another offer to umpire in the Southwest International League, but this time he couldn't get a leave of absence. This time he'd have to go all in on his dream, which meant leaving a job, a really good job that he had worked incredibly hard to get. So
4: I made the decision I had to make, which everybody does in their life somewhere, I just thought, how many men go to their grave without doing what's in here? So I resigned the 15 years' of seniority I had at the post office to go out and gamble on this thing.
0: Have you ever regretted it? No. Never. Emmett was now a professional umpire, and the road from the bottom to the top would be very long and very hard. You got to be in shape, conditioning.
4: People don't realize that. They think the umpires standing out there, and, uh, they don't need any conditioning. Poppy cop. They need look bending down. You have to use the back muscle, the back of your leg.
2: All you have to do is watch any baseball game where you've got a pitcher who throws sliders that bounce in the dirt and then head God knows where and you see that the umpires get hit in the legs all the time or a batter swings at a ball and fouls back a a ball that hits the umpire right in the face which every once in a while breaks their nose foul balls off the bat at you know 140 miles an hour that hit them in the arm or the shoulder blade it's grueling it's absolutely
4: grueling and If you miss one of the pitches in a crucial situation, they're going to jump you about it. They know it's no tea party out there.
0: Once in Texas, Ashford was sent to relieve a white umpire who had gotten injured earlier in the season. It was a game between El Paso and Chihuahua.
4: When I got there, there were only two policemen outside the park. And by the second or third inning, there were 15. First inning, I had to go to third base to make a call on a countryman playing for Chihuahua. It was a close play, but before I can get my arms up to safe position, I hear all this stuff that Jackie Robinson heard way back in forth. I took it, got out of it, started back, and I got halfway back. I hear this raucous voice talking about, Ashford, why in the hell don't you go back to California? We don't want y'all trying to do a white man's job.
3: Umpires are obviously, you know, they're ruling on the game. They're making decisions. They're in a position of authority. And I think a lot of the people who were in positions of power who would have been able to promote Emmett Ashford to these levels, you know, whether it was the Pacific Coast League or Major League Baseball, weren't comfortable with having an African-American man in that position of power, you know, whereas with Jackie, I think that was a little bit more palatable at the time
0: you can play for us sing for us entertain us but don't tell us right or wrong don't tell us how to play our game it's our game our story you're just looking in from outside and here's Emmett out on a limb trying to be the best umpire he can be being abused at every turn the law is against him the bosses are against him the fans are against him even his fellow umpires are against him including his very first on-field partner.
4: He had a bad habit of calling me boy. So one night in Victoria, I'll never forget it, we came in after a game and he was gonna tell me something about that I had done wrong. And I had just had enough of it. And he starts out with boy. I whirled on his ass, grabbed him at the throat of the neck and jammed him up against the wall. I said, if you use that word, boy, to I me mean one more time, I'm gonna knock your teeth down and out your asshole. Now I said I mean it, and he knew from looking my eyes I did. I said, is that clear? He said, okay, all right, all right. That's the only time that I think I got violent. It's different when Jackie came in, Bob, and here I come along some twenty years later running things the boss
0: right the boss so how does he do it how does he break through insurmountable odds a racist system a racist country a racist organization he breaks through by being better than everyone else
4: you No, know, the umpire schools they should have actually behind the damn names they are using my system all the mechanics I did all of that And uh, they're using it now. And you know, when I came in, I knew I had to be nine tenths right. Any mistake,
0: a blown call, a single error in judgment on a ball being thrown 100 miles an hour from 60 feet 6 inches away could mean the end of Ashford's dreams. How many times have I made mistakes? How many times have I been given a second chance, the benefit of the doubt? My life is literally a collection of mistakes through which I was able to learn. Emmett didn't have that privilege. So many don't have that privilege. What he did, what so many have to do, was be perfect. He invented a system of umpiring, of positioning his body so that any possible play unfolded right in front of his eyes. The way he crouched behind the catcher as a pitch was delivered. The way he rotated his body to see ball, player, base, runner, everything, all at once. Watch a game of baseball. Ignore the players on the field. Just watch the umpires move across the dirt as a play develops. Watch them rotate and shift and position themselves so that they can see, so that they can judge. Emmett Ashford perfected all of that. And he was so good, so undeniably good at his job, that he begins to claw his way upwards. After he outgrew the Southwestern International League, he joined the Arizona-Texas League, and then the Western International League.
4: This is off the record, or if you want to use it, I don't care. I remember the Western International League. They had to remove the president in order to get me in.
0: After a year in the Western International League, he joined the Pacific Coast League, where he spent 12 years being the best, most popular umpire in the league. A moment for Emmett Ashford. Born in 1914, was his class president, ran track, played baseball, served his country in World War II, crisscrossed the Southwest, being the best umpire that he could be, better than everyone else by an unimaginable margin, so that he could be the first black umpire in the major leagues. Pushed and pushed against a system that didn't want him, devised a method of umpiring to make sure that he was right 99.99% of the time, because a black man trying to succeed in a white world has to be practically perfect. Emmett Ashford. Works and works and works. And then, finally, on April 11th, 1966, almost 20 years to the date after Jackie Robinson became the first black player in the majors, Emmett Ashford makes his debut as an umpire in Major League Baseball.
4: Do you remember your thoughts when you walked out of the field? Yes, I did. Of course, I had problems trying to get in the place. Secret Service was there because I think Hubert Humphrey was gonna throw out the first ball. They set up command posts that all entrances are, are into the parking lot. I came in with my wife in the cab and uh, the cab driver told her, the agent, I've got one of the umpires here. And the agent says, come on, Lala, who are you trying to kid? He said, that's right, I've got one of the umpires. He looked back at me with disbelief. That happened. Twice more before I could get to the umpire's room. Anyway, got dressed, walked out on that field. They had a full house that day. And I looked around. Tears sort of came to my eyes. And after all these years, here I am. It's, It's quite a feeling, bro. No one can quite describe it.
0: Emmett Ashford debuted in 1966, umpired until 1970. And his legacy is so much larger than just being the first black umpire. His mechanics, his style, the way he called people out or safe, they all live on in the annals of baseball history. Fans knew Emmett Ashford. They loved Emmett Ashford. Baseball loved Emmett Ashford. Emma, let me ask you this. You worked so hard to get there. You were up there. You were my favorite umpire. You were. You're probably the favorite umpire of 90% of baseball's fans who never had a favorite umpire. They were just invisible men in blue out there. And here you came, a very highly visible man in blue. Why'd you quit?
4: They got an age limit jump Bob. Huh? At 55? Yeah. And you started at 48? It just, it's just a shame that I it got to five years. I got one year of grace out of it. I was 56 when... One extra. Yeah.
0: And that's the hardest part of all of this. It's so sad to me. He worked so long to get to the top of the game, and then, because the game took so long to catch up to him, he only got to do the thing he loved at the highest level for six years. And that slowness, it's its just unforgivable. It took baseball almost two decades to go from a black player to a black umpire, and then it would take another 50 years before baseball would get its first black crew chief. Here's Alex Coffee again.
3: It's been, um... I believe 10 African-American umpires have debuted since Emmett Ashford broke the color barrier in 1966, so, um, so you know, not a lot. You know, you hear from players of color all the time that you, they think that baseball is a white man's sport. It's something that's kind of... It's kind of set at large and it's been said recently um, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Um, players have been speaking out more and more about that. So it's definitely present. It's hard to kind of nail down why that might be. Um, but but yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a theme.
0: The project of first time Long Time has always been to explore what sports say about us, about our lives, about our feelings, about our history. And when you look at Ashford's story, you cannot help but see baseball exactly the same way that Julia saw America.
1: You're always made to believe that you might you might fit in. You might, this might be your story. And all these rituals and all this history might be yours. But I mean, for so many people, it never really is. Um, that, that's the catch.
0: And there's something incredibly cruel about this because in reporting the story, in, in centering this man's unbelievable achievement, We're also centering how little has changed. And that not only might diminish Emmett Ashford's incredible feat of will and excellence, but it also reinforces the notion that he didn't belong. But he did. Emmett Ashford belonged. Baseball was his. Angel Hernandez, the umpire of the last baseball game played before quarantine, belongs. Baseball is his. Even if baseball didn't know it then and doesn't know it still. And look, there's absolutely nothing neat about this story. When we were working on this story, Julia felt like we hadn't appropriately expressed the bigness of Ashford's big moment. We like stories that build up and up and up, culminating in one moment that changes everything instantly and forever. But we couldn't find that big singular moment because Emmett Ashford had to fight that battle, had to prove his worthiness, had to live that singular moment over and over and over again. There's no buildup, because Ashford was always worthy. This is not a story of triumph, though it's also a story of triumph. This is a horror story, but it's also a story of triumph. A story that started long before Emmett Ashford and is still being told painfully slowly. And if we're honest, this story isn't just about Emmett Ashford and Jackie Robinson and Angel Hernandez. It also includes me and maybe you, people who were given power, people who withhold access, people who defend tradition because admitting their role is too painful. And I have to say, the events of January 6, 2021 have only made it clear that Major League Baseball's slowness to accept a black umpire is not an aberration. It is the norm. It is the sum total of a society that would rather believe that there's a cabal of secret pedophile lizard kings or whatever they believe, than accept that they have power and privilege that isn't granted to other people in this country. And none of us are immune to this. If there is a triumph to this story, it's that Emmett Ashford's life proves the point that there is a right and a wrong. And we need people with integrity to tell us when those rules are being broken. We need umpires. We need Emmett Ashford, who died 41 years ago, 10 years after his last appearance, calling balls and strikes. First Time Longtime is written and edited by me, Aaron Wolf, and produced and rewritten by Julia Chen. Joshi Balgos and Nasya Kamrat are our executive producers. You can learn more about everything you just heard at firsttimelongtime.am and at wearefaculty.com. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.